We continue our study of Philippians, which takes us today into chapter 2. I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes. And let me begin by pointing out that the first four paragraphs in your sermon notes, which takes up most of the first page, is simply a capsule summary of what I'm about to share with you uh, to set up uh, chapter 2. I thought you would appreciate uh, the summary, uh, but no need for you to try to follow it word for word because I'm not going to follow it word for word. I'm going to expand greatly upon it, but at least gives you a summary of what I'm going to share in a moment. You know, from the very beginning of our study of Philippians, we have emphasized there are five recurring themes that weave uh, throughout the book. Uh, The first, which was really the primary focus of chapter one, although it continues the rest of the book, is the priority of living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second major theme is the secret to true joy. The third, the importance of maintaining the right attitude toward life. The fourth, the surpassing value and gain of knowing Christ Jesus. And then fifth, the motivation to live for Christ in light of His return. That there is coming a day of accounting for believers uh, when we will stand before our Savior to give an account of our deeds. But of those five, Of those five recurring themes, the two most often mentioned in the book is the secret to true joy and the maintaining of a right attitude. Sixteen different times the theme of joy is found in the book of Philippians. And because of this, Philippians has been called uh, the Apostle Paul's personal manifesto on how to experience a life full of joy. The theme, maintaining the right attitude, is captured in the Greek verb uh, proneo. Uh, Of its 24 occurrences in the New Testament, 10 of them are found right here in the book of Philippians. Uh, This is why Philippians has been called a Christian psychology book. Now, not a self-help book uh, to convince you everything is going to turn out right, but to teach you how to think, to teach you the right attitude to have, the right mindset. If you are going to experience Christian joy living in this world that is full of troubles and sorrows, troubles and sorrows which are inevitable and inescapable for each and every one of us. Now... It's very easy to see how these two themes, joy and attitude, are inseparably linked to one another. What are the two primary things that rob us of joy in life? The two primary things that rob us of joy in life. I think we could say circumstances and people. I mean, I could be pretty happy 
if circumstances and people would just leave me alone. But reality is, you're not going to be able to escape your circumstances, and you're not going to be able to escape uh, people. Therefore, our attitude toward circumstances, toward people, will determine our joy or lack of it. In chapter 1, we discovered how Paul, in the worst of circumstances, unlawfully, in prison, for four years, experienced the best of joy. Seems a paradox. Worst of circumstances, yet the best of joy. The secret was his single mind, his singular focus to live for Jesus Christ in all circumstances, captured in verse 21 when he wrote, for to me to live is what? Christ, and to die is gain. We, we note it in the Greek text. It's even simpler than that. He simply wrote, to live Christ, to die gain. And that was Paul's motto. Paul's attitude towards his circumstances was since God is sovereign and causes all things to work together for the good, for the spiritual benefit of his child, then my circumstances, they're not working against me. No, they're actually working for me to enable me to know Christ in a deeper way and to make Jesus known to others. Paul was not so much concerned with escaping his circumstances as he was exalting Christ in the midst of his circumstances. Therefore, he was freed from worry, freed from fretting over what might or might not happen in the future. Instead, he focused on experiencing and exalting Jesus in his present circumstance, leaving the outcome to sovereign God. Now, this completely altered Paul's attitude toward his circumstances. For example, it's fascinating. Paul did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. He wrote that what? I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The shackles that he wore, he called my bonds in the cause of Christ. He did not see himself facing a civil trial before the emperor Nero. He wrote, I am set for the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul never, listen now, Paul never looked at Christ through his circumstances, but looked at his circumstances through Christ which was the secret to his joy, to his joy. Now, do you understand what I mean by that? See, we tend, listen now, we tend to let our circumstances color how we see Jesus. If my circumstances are good, well, I color Jesus bright and happy. If my circumstances are bad, I color Jesus dark and angry. Paul simply surrendered his circumstances to Jesus, excited to see what Jesus would color. You know, it was like watching a sketch artist. And I know you've all seen these, uh, these guys. It's fascinating. Where there, there appears to be no rhyme or reason in the painting. It just seems to be a lot of chicken scraps. And then all of a sudden, 
with just two or three strokes of the paintbrush, this beautiful, beautiful picture emerges. And this is what God did for Paul when he wrote in chapter 1, verse 12, that what my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. As we have already seen, what appeared to be a great setback for the advance of the gospel, Paul's imprisonment, actually turned out as the greatest advance for the gospel. As through Paul's imprisonment, the Praetorian Guard, that elite group of Roman soldiers, came to hear of Jesus, many of them coming to know Jesus, and then through their witness, Jesus literally becoming the talk of all Rome, even to the point where we're told Caesar's household was penetrated with the gospel, and even members from Caesar's household came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Therefore, when circumstances turned painful for Paul, when they turned perplexing, when he couldn't understand uh, what was happening, what God was doing, he did not whine and ask, why me? But he looked in expectation to the master artist. And he asked in excitement, what next? What next, Lord? See, it was this single mind to live for Jesus Christ in all circumstances that was the key to Paul's joy and it can lead us to joy as well. Now, today as we move into chapter 2, we discover why people could not rob Paul of his joy. And why could not people rob Paul of his joy? Because of his servant mind, to love like Christ in all relationships. It's in the context of relating to others. We read in verse 5 of chapter 2, let this attitude, this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul viewed people not as a means to get what he wanted, but gifts from God, providing him the opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved. The New Testament emphasizes that behind all relational conflict is pride and selfishness. We believe we have rights. We believe that our way is best and we want to get our way. And if someone challenges that, the fireworks begin. But the emphasis in chapter 2 is to look at people not as obstacles blocking your path to joy, but gifts from God to teach you to be like Jesus, to teach you to be patient like Jesus, to be kind like Jesus, to be forgiving like Jesus, to be sacrificial like Jesus. And the more difficult the person, the greater the opportunity to learn to love like Christ. Amen? You know, we, in uh, Sunday school, you know, we're doing this gospel-centered parenting class. And I was part of a panel discussion this morning with uh, some others where the parents had an opportunity to ask us uh, questions. And I don't I never understood why I'm asked to be on those things because I'm telling you folks, uh, Kathy was the stellar parent, not me. Uh, 
I learned more from my errors than I ever learned from my successes. And everything I learned about parenting, I learned from my, my wife, Kathy, and I, I really appreciate that. But we, we were talking about difficult children. You know, children that you think is going to take you to your grave. That's just a battle 24-7. Well, you know, even that child is a gift to mom and dad to give them an opportunity to what? To learn to be like Jesus. And if you haven't figured this out, hey, ladies, that's why you're married to the man you're married to. And vice versa. We learn in chapter 2 that just like in Christ's life, joy is never determined. I'm talking about true lasting joy. Is never determined by what you receive from others, but by what you what? Give to others. As Jesus said, blessed, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the most important truth, the most important truth to see in chapter 2 is to see how all of this is applied to unity in the church. Paul drives home here in chapter 2 that the only sufficient basis for unity in the church is each member of the church following the model of Christ's love. That is the heart of this chapter in verses 5 through 8. This beautiful picture of Christ's love that motivated him to leave the glories of heaven and to come to this sin-cursed world as a man to pour himself out in death for you and I. The passage says, have this attitude, have this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And keep in mind, as we're going to see, this example is put right in the middle of Paul addressing our relationships with one another. Whether it's in the family, per, you know, physical blood family, whether it's in the church family, whether it's relating to co-workers, it's put right in the middle. And he says, as you deal with people now, have this attitude, have this mindset, have this focus, in you, what was, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form equal to God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to grasp. But he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant. Almighty God humbled himself to become the servant of his creation. And he says, and being found in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, at this point, you can pick back up in your notes and look at the question, if you have your notes, look at the question near the end of page one in your notes. That question, why is love and unity so important in the church family? So if you found that in your notes toward the end of that first page, why is love and unity so important in the church family? Now, Jesus gives us the answer. He provides the answer in the two verses that you see there in your notes from the Gospel of John. In chapter 13, 
verse 35, Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Here's how they're going to determine the authenticity of Christianity. This is what is going to draw people to me. If you have love for one another. And then in John 17, he prayed this for his followers. In verse 23. That they, his followers, you and I, may be perfected in unity. Why? In order that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Notice, only when Christ's love unites believers will the world be willing to listen to and believe the message of Jesus Christ. As we demonstrate a love for one another in the church family, a love that is greater than our differences, a love that unites us in our diversity, that kind of love gets the attention of the world. Listen to this uh, quote, great, great quote by Pastor Ray Stedman, a wonderful pastor uh, that God wonderfully used. And this is what he said. He said, the divine strategy. I like how he put that. The divine strategy by which the Lord intends to bring the world to the awareness of Jesus Christ is to create in the midst of the world a family. A family life. A shared life. Which is so unmistakable and so filled with joy and warmth that worldlings observing it will envy it. And like homeless orphans with their noses pressed up against the window will long to join the warmth and fellowship of the family circle. The remarkable thing is that when the church is like this, there is no more potent evangelistic thrust. This is the divine strategy to make all Christians share one life in a great family and so make the world starving for meaningful personal relationships simply drool with desire. And did you know, do you understand this historically, that what I just read is what enabled the New Testament church to literally turn the world upside down? Listen, listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. It's not in your notes. Ephesians 2, 14. It says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And then in verse 16, we read, together, together, I love that word, together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups, Jews and Gentiles, to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Now, to fully appreciate this uniting of Jews and Gentiles into one 
loving family, you must understand the deep-seated animosity that existed between these two communities. The Gentiles despised Jews as a slave people to be exploited, walked on, trampled, and abused. On the other hand, the Jews literally believed, they taught this, that that God created Gentiles. You know why God created them? To be the fuel for the fires in hell. That's what they taught. It was unlawful for a Jew to help a Gentile woman in childbirth. Why? Because it would bring another Gentile into the world. All social contact between Jews and Gentiles was prohibited. If a Jew married a Gentile, guess what happened with that Jew? He was cut off. They actually had his funeral. He no longer lived in the Jewish community. He was dead to the Jewish community. Just going into a Gentile house rendered a Jew unclean. And when the Apostle Paul referred to the wall of hostility that separated us, he was referring to the literal stone wall that served as a barrier in the temple to separate Jews and Gentiles. Warning notices were posted on the walls throughout the temple, both in Greek and Latin, which read, No foreigner, in other words, no Gentile, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And by the way, if you remember, this is what got Paul in prison. Remember when I gave you that summary of Paul's four-year imprisonment? Well, what initiated that is that he was falsely accused of taking Gentiles into the temple in Jerusalem, which literally started a citywide riot, which ended up with Paul being in prison for four years. In other words, the hostility and the prejudice that existed between Jews and Gentiles was so great, it was literally considered impossible to reconcile them. There was just too much history. There was just too much blood. There's just too much bitterness, too much anger. But we're told in Ephesians 2 that the cross of Jesus Christ tore down the wall and united the two groups into one loving family. And folks, it was that testimony. It was that testimony of unity and love that enabled the early church to turn the world upside down. It was that demonstration of love that proved the authenticity of their Christianity. It was that love, that shared family life that drew a lost world to them. And this is why, listen to me now, this is why division in the church family is such a serious matter. Listen to this quote by Paul Bilheimer. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Paul Bilheimer. Years ago, we had the incredible privilege of having this giant saint here at Edgewood, and uh, he wrote a number of just very small books that have become classics, uh, Destined for the Throne, uh, Don't Waste Your Sorrows, uh, Love Covers, but this is what he wrote, disunity in the body of Christ 
is the scandal of the ages. The greatest sin of the church is not lying, stealing, drunkenness, adultery, not even murder, but the sin of disunity. Why? Because disunity in the body of Christ is more prevalent than these other sins. And just as truly ties the hands of the Holy Spirit, it causes more souls to be lost than these flagrant offenses. The Holy Spirit cannot deal effectively in the conviction and conversion of sinners where the saints are divided. And this is why Paul... Do do you know in every one of Paul's epistles, without exception... He addresses this issue of unity. Because Paul realized it was of supreme importance. He realized that disunity would be a fatal blow to the church. It would prevent the church from carrying out the mission God gave it to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without the credibility of their testimony of love, there could be no credible verbal witness. Now look at the next statement in your notes, right at the bottom of that first page. The the advance of the gospel will rise or fall on how we relate to one another. A church united by the love of Christ is the only thing that will convince a lost world about the truth of Christ. A church united by the love of Christ is the only thing that will convince a lost world about the truth of Christ. And this takes us into chapter 2, where we learn in the first eight verses that the mind of Christ, the mind, the attitude, the mindset of Jesus is the key to church unity. So look first at the uh, introduction there. The Philippian church was facing external opposition, persecution from the Roman Empire but also struggling with internal disunity. He talks about in chapter 4 about this argument between these two prominent ladies in the church. And uh, we're not giving mu- given much detail, uh, but apparently folks took sides. It was threatening to, to tear the church in half. Chapter 2 talks about disputings and murmurings and grumbling. And Paul knew he needed to jump on this before it destroyed this church's witness and the advance of the gospel there in Philippi. So with internal unity, which threatened the credibility of their witness and effectiveness to advance the gospel. These struggles provide the basis for Paul's exhortation at the end of chapter 1. And it's there for you in your notes. At the end of chapter 1, Paul exhorted them. This is his first really uh, imperative that he extends to the church. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Hey, live in a way that's going to promote the gospel of Christ. And how do you promote the gospel of Christ? Standing firm, he says, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents. Now, notice the emphasis on all the members having what? One mind. One mind. 
Now, as we move into chapter 2, Paul simply explains what that one mind is. And we're going to see it's the believers having the same mind or the same attitude toward one another as Christ had toward them. That's the secret. That's the key to unity. Now, what I'd like to do, you notice at the uh, back page, there are five points. I'm going to give you all five, just very briefly right now. Uh, But then the next time I preach, of course, next Sunday will be Easter Sunday with the music presentation. But the first Sunday in April, which will be a beautiful Lord's Supper service, I will come back to this and I will amplify it more. But, But I want to give you the outline. So that you can begin reflecting upon it. That you can begin practicing it. And so let's walk through this very briefly. And then we'll come back to it in two weeks. And expand it in a much fuller way. That first truth. What is the mind of Christ? Well the mind of Christ is first sharing with one another the blessings of Christ. The mind of Christ is sharing with one another the blessings of Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now folks, here's the key to understanding those two verses. Because the... uh, English versions sort of take us down a different track. Let me, what what you need to do, look at those two verses, and everywhere where you see the word if, circle that. Circle the word if. Every place you see it, and realize in the Greek, that would better be translated since. So let me read it in a more literal translation from the Greek text. Paul says, since therefore... There is encouragement in Christ. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is the fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete by you being of the same mind, maintaining the same love that I've just told you about, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is he saying? He's just making making a very simple but very profound observation. He says, you folks have been beneficiaries of the blessings of the gospel. You've known the encouragement of Christ in your life. You've known his consolation of love. Matter of fact, that word encouragement, it means to come alongside of a person and support them. That word consolation, it means to come alongside of a person, to speak closely with that person for the purpose of giving them comfort. So he says, you've known that encouragement in your relationship with Christ. You've known the consolation of love in your relationship with Christ. You've known the fellowship of the Spirit that has supported you and carried you through many of the adversities you've experienced in life. You've known the affection and the compassion of God. And those are really the same thing, just two sides uh, of the same coin. Uh, affection, splank uh, on, it, it literally means bowels. Uh, we get our word spleen from this, but it, what it means, what it refers to is the seat or the heart of emotions and feelings. And then compassion is those same feelings reaching out in action, 
loving someone in some concrete way. So he says, you've also experienced the deep feelings and emotions of God that has motivated him to reach out to you, not only to save you through the person and work of Jesus, but again, to carry you through life. His compassions are new with each new day. His mercies will never fail you. Great is his faithfulness. And so what is he saying? Hey, if you have benefited from the gospel, you're to pass that on. You're to pass that on. You have received that to give it to others. A great example. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, God comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we can what? Comfort others in their affliction and share with them the same comfort that we receive from God. There's the, an example. There's the principle. So that's the first thing. He says the mind of Christ is sharing with one another the blessings of Christ. I receive, oh, by God's mercy, I've received so much. And therefore, I am obligated now to give that to you, to my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Look at the second truth. The mind of Christ is thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ. The mind of Christ is thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ. Verses 3 and 5, do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. There's that selfishness and pride that is the heart of all personal conflict in our homes, in our church, in our state, nation, whatever the context. And he says, you don't do anything as a believer out of selfishness. You don't do anything out of pride to exalt yourself, to promote yourself, to gain an advantage for yourself. But with humility, or that would be better translated with lowliness of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And folks, it's hard to see how... That would not be the key to unity in the church. Can you imagine what would happen in a church where every person thought like that? Where it wasn't, it's not about my preferences. It's not about what I want. But it's all about Jesus. And it's all about serving others. And where I live in such a way where I'm constantly focusing on what's best for you. What's best for the church family? What's best for the advance of the gospel? Look at the third. Again, we're going to amplify these in two weeks in a much greater way because there's so much more that can be said. Look at the third truth. The mind of Christ is looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. Not only thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ, but looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. He says, do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. He says, I want your focus not to be on yourself, but on the others in the church family. To benefit them, to grow them, to edify them. Look at the fourth truth. The mind of Christ is embracing one another with the arms of Christ. Thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ. Looking at one another with the eyes of Christ. And now embracing one another with the arms of Christ. And how did he embrace us unconditionally? It says, who although 
verses 6 and 7, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or selfishly clung on to, but he emptied himself. He poured his entire God self into a man so that he could pour himself out in death for us on Calvary's cross to give us new life. And why? Because he regarded us as more important than himself. Because he wasn't looking at what would be best for him. He was looking at what would be best for us. And therefore he was willing to let go of anything and everything that would prevent him from becoming a man. Dying on that cross, rising again and embracing you and I with an unconditional love. And then look at the fifth truth. The mind of Christ is loving one another with the heart of Christ. It's loving one another. Loving one another with the heart of Christ. And it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And let me just say, let me tell you two phrases to circle, because we're going to amplify these in a much greater way in two weeks. Go back to that fourth point. Circle the phrase, emptied himself. Emptied himself. And then in that fifth point, verse 8, circle, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. In other words, this speaks of Jesus voluntarily taking action that was best for you and I. And what we're going to see is that's what love comes down to. It's you and I choosing to make decisions that will be the best for others. And, and, and to be honest, what we're going to see, I'll give you a little taste of what we'll be looking at. What we're going to see is that, is that love, in many, on many occasions, is a choice that you make to invest in another person that will run contrary initially to your feelings. And that is a key. That is a key. So I'm really excited about going further in chapter 2. Very excited about coming to, back to these five truths in two weeks and, uh, and expanding them. Uh, but I wanted to give you that full outline so right now you can begin reflecting. And, and folks, you know, it's not that there's a great mystery there. Uh, you don't need a lot of explanation. It's just to start what? Doing it. Uh, practicing it. Uh, you learn love by practicing love. I was sharing with one of my close friends um, earlier in the week how in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we're given that marvelous description of love. And in our English Bibles, it appears to be adjectives describing what love is like. But in the Greek text, they're all verbs, action words. And the simple truth is, you learn love by practicing love and by making choices. Yes, that often will initially run contrary to your feelings. And you do that out of respect for who? Jesus, who did that for you. Because did he feel like going to the cross? You go home and you read the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the emotional battle that he fought 
Everything about him was telling him to flee. But he resolved it by saying what? Not my will, but what? Thine be done. And so as I'm struggling, it might be my wife, it might be a husband, it might be a child, it, might be, it, it could be a co-worker, a neighbor. See, there comes a, I say, not my will, but thine be done, and I invest. I love. Realizing they're not an obstacle in my path to joy. No, they're a gift from God to lead me to true joy, to teach me to love as Jesus loved. So as we extend the invitation uh, today, if you're here and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you heard the truth. You heard of Jesus' love that motivated him to leave heaven and come to this world to die on the cross. And when he died on that cross, your sin was laid on him. He suffered the punishment that you deserved. He was pierced for your sins. He was crushed for your iniquities. God treated him as if he had lived your sinful life so that right now he could treat you with mercy and love. And I would invite you to to open up your heart, to invite Jesus in, to forgive you of your sins, take control of your life as you turn from running your life to follow him. And then it would be our joy for you to make that your public profession. And, uh, and anyone who truly comes to know Jesus, they're not ashamed of knowing Jesus. They're not ashamed of making that known. It's their joy to do so, and we would love to give you that opportunity. Um, but believers, how has God spoken? You, I think we could all relate. You know, if it wasn't for my circumstances or people, I could be pretty happy. <laughs> well, who are the people in your life right now that you're struggling with? Take that truth, take that outline, and begin praying, and begin practicing, and trust God. Like that sketch artist, you may not quite understand it all, but you're going you're gonna to trust him. That eventually, a beautiful picture is going to emerge that would resound to his glory. Amen? Amen. So please stand as the invitation is extended, and I'll be here to... Uh, Greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. But I trust every one of us will be responding to the truth that we've heard.